The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Broga on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. All right. Welcome to Empirical Investing Radio. Your host here, Ethan Broga. Uh, normally sitting alongside Ken Smith, who today is absent, and he's, uh, I'm sure, enjoying himself on a luxurious vacation in Hawaii, I understand, for the last week or so. Uh, as it is, I'll be taking his place as the main host of today's show, and uh, wanted to spend most of our time today discussing a very important topic to most individuals, and that is retirement planning. And in fact, uh, as I've, I've mentioned on the show before, we've uh, developed a uh, Five Secrets to Retirement Success Actually, a presentation that's available for, for everybody to view on our website. Uh, it's empirical.net. And we've been running around the local area here, um, giving these seminars and helping literally hundreds of individuals in the last probably 12 months or so. Uh, some of the keys to what I think are, are retirement success. So we'll get to that in just a minute. Um, wanted to invite listeners of the show today to feel free to give us a call. Um, this is a, a live program broadcasting from the beautiful downtown Empirical Towers here in Seattle. You can reach us directly at uh, 866-472-5790 or email Elliot. He's the assistant on today's broadcast at contact at empiradio.com. And uh, also, Ken, I'm sure you're out there listening, and I hope you enjoy the show as well. So let's get started. The very first thing we're going to talk about in today's show, and uh, it's a very important one for most folks entering retirement, and that is Social Security. And more importantly, how to maximize those benefits. Um, Social Security, as most of us know, um, has a few, I think, very unique characteristics. Uh, Firstly, it adjusts for inflation. So as payments are made, uh, as inflation goes on through time, the payments increase to keep up with inflation. It also has certain tax advantages. Uh, At a maximum rate, 85% of Social Security payments would be included in your income. And that means 15% would be received tax-free. At a, at a minimum level. Uh, so it has some pretty good tax advantages as well. Um, the other benefit, as we all probably know, is received for life. And indeed, if you're married, um, the, the over the lifetime of both you and your spouse. So that's a critical component of deciding when to take Social Security. And then lastly, it's also backed by a government guarantee. And uh, to me, it's as good as Treasury notes, which is uh, at least the market perceives them to be as uh, safe as the safest security around. Um, moving on. One of the things that I, I typically uh, dive into when meeting with folks and talk about Social Security benefits is this idea of joint life expectancy. And most folks go through the process of saying, well, I don't know if I'm going to live till whenever the break-even age and then make a determination of when, when they should take Social Security benefits. But if you're married, especially for spouses, um, you really should consider what I call joint life expectancy. And what that means is simply this. The likelihood of one spouse living longer 
than either spouse individually is significant. So as an example, if you're currently age 62 and you're, you're male, uh, life expectancy for you is age 82. So it's a 50-50 chance that you'd reach the age 82. If you're female and age, age uh, 62, um, there's a 50-50 chance that you'd reach the age of 85. These are just based off the current mortality tables. However, if you're married and you consider joint life expectancies of, of a couple age 62, it's more likely than not that one of you will reach age 89. So that's a significant difference in, in ages there. Um, you're talking about seven years greater for the, for the male and about four years greater for the female. So when you're talking about Social Security payments, it really, particularly in the context of, of uh, joint, uh, joint assets or joint life expectancies, uh, it's a, a big thing to consider. You can re- you're going to basically receive payments for a longer period of time. And I don't know if I mentioned this already, but uh, uh, this, this information is available on our website at empirical.net. We've actually created a 20-minute short video presentation that highlights some of these important components of retirement and writing new things there all the time. In fact, uh, uh, Eric, one of our research analysts, is constantly posting things on our blog and discussing things like, you know, are bonds a good thing to buy right now? What investment strategies are most likely to succeed? And, and those sorts of things. Um, going back to Social Security, however... This idea of when to take Social Security is also further uh, made more difficult by uh, this joint life expectancy feature in that there are several different ways to take Social Security benefits if you're married, uh, specifically talking about what we call the switching strategies. And, you know, I do these presentations from time to time around the local area here, and I always, well, I usually ask the question, how many people here are married? And then a quantity of people raise their hand. And then I ask the second question, which is, how many people here have heard of either the file and suspend strategy or the restricted application strategy? And invariably, most folks don't raise their hand. Most folks who are entering retirement have not heard of these particular ideas, at least by name, that's for sure. And so I'm going to talk about them just a little bit here because the, the implications of, this, of these strategies are significant for investors. First of all, let's talk about the file and suspend strategy. Now, this is typically used when you have one person in a couple who has an earnings record. In other words, both spouses did not work. Only one did. And you typically use the restricted application when you have uh, both spouses have uh, earnings records. So the file and suspend trade, let's talk about that. And again, there's a very handy diagram on our website uh, with the specific information. So uh, without the visual aid, it's probably a little more hard, a little harder uh, to get the, the grasp of what's going on. But if you'd like to go to our website, empirical.net, you can look things, these things up as well. But looking at the file and suspend strategy, what happens here is this. The, the, high, rather the, the wage earner files for full benefits at retirement age. So let's say it's me. I'm 66 years old now, and I want to file for benefits um, and, at 66, which I do. But then I turn around immediately and then suspend benefits. So that's how they get the file and suspend. So why would I do that? What, what good does that do me, you might say? Well, it does a couple of things, one of which is this. It makes the non-wage earner, so i.e. my spouse, who didn't work, eligible to receive benefits at the time that I file, assuming she's also uh, Social Security age. And then also what happens is that my my retirement credits, because I'm not currently taking it, even though I, I filed and suspended, I will build up what's called delayed retirement credits. And in fact, if I could defer up until age 70 if I wanted to, it's a full four years between age 66 and 70, that means I actually receive an 8% increase in payments per year for every year that I defer. And that means in total I'd receive, by age 70, payments that are now 32% higher than what they would have been at age 66, which is a significant difference. And let's say that 
in the future, once I file and I actually start receiving my own benefits at 70 and beyond, um, and let's say I predeceased my wife in this case, uh, she would also then step up to my benefits. So whatever I'm receiving at age 70 then, let's say I passed away at age 80, she then would continue to collect what benefits uh, I, would have, I had been earning uh, by waiting till age 70 to collect them. So an enormous amount of wealth can be created by using the two of those two strategies, or rather both of those strategies. And I wanted to give you uh, an example of how that works in the context of our next discussion, which is the, re is the restricted application. And it's actually a very similar idea. Um, the file and suspend and the restricted applications are very, very closely related. Um, but in that situation, it goes like this. We have two, two people, a wage earner, and a, uh, rather a low wage earner, and a high wage earner. And so what happens in the restricted application is this. The low wage earner files for and starts to receive monthly benefits. This makes the high wage uh, earner eligible to receive benefits under low, the low wage earner's earnings record. This is really a mouthful, but it, the details are important here. Next, the high wage earner at full retirement will start to receive payments under the low wage spouse's earnings record. Just repeating myself there. And then starting at age 70, will switch to my switch to his or her own uh, benefits and along the way have received these delayed retirement credits equal to 8% per year for the four years that, that they deferred. And then again, let's say in this case that uh, the last step here is the low wage earner. Um, if the high wage earner dies first, the low wage earner then receives the larger of the two pay payments, which is a, a significant amount of money over time. So let me run through an actual example to actually tie these up together for you. And in this case, we'll talk about uh, John and Jane Sample. In this case, they're both age 62, and they both qualify for Social Security under their own individual earnings records. Um, running an estimate, it turns out that what we expect to happen is that over time, they would collect about $972,000 from Social Security over their expected lifetimes, which is an enormous amount of money, um, almost a million dollars, in fact. Um, but what happens if we use one of these ideas, the, using the, the restricted application instead, just filing uh, as, as soon as possible? Well, in this case, the expected benefit over their period of time increases by $208,000. In other words, if they do the restricted application and they live to life expectancy age, they'll collect almost $1.2 million in total benefits from Social Security relative to the $972,000 they were planning to receive. Um, and that's just one of the the big things that goes on in retirement is maximizing that particular element of retirement income. That extra $208,000 is not subject to market risk like a portfolio would be. It's not really the stock and bond risk. Um, it's also adjusted for inflation, has certain tax benefits, and again, it's, it's going to last as long as you do. So maximizing that particular strategy is, is a very, very good idea in my view. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, hey, uh, what about this bank idea of bankruptcy and Social Security? Indeed, that's a very reasonable question. Um, and my answer to that is this. Um, if, if you have the Social Security Trust Fund, which is what people are typically are referring to when they talk about Social Security and bankruptcy in the same sentence, um, they're talking about the trust fund. And the trust fund, well, it goes like this. The trust fund doesn't account for all the payments that are being made. In fact, 77% of current payments going out to people actually don't come from the trust fund. They come from current earnings, i.e. people paying into the Social Security system. That means that a full 23% of the current benefits being paid out actually come from the trust fund itself, which means in turn if the trust fund was actually zero tomorrow, 
you know, say that for, for whatever reason we woke up and the trust fund was exhausted for some reason, would checks still go out? And the answer is yes, they would still go out. They'd be a little less. They'd be 23% less. But benefits would still be paid because that amount of money is coming through the system um, through our, all, all of our, our payroll deductions and so forth. Uh, further, beyond that, it doesn't take a lot, in my view, to get the trust fund um, trust fund hold to make it where it won't exa- be exhausted. And currently, by the way, it's ex- at the current pace anyway, uh, it's ex- scheduled to be exhausted by 2034. That's the latest uh, estimates from the Social Security Department. But it would only take an increase in Social Security tax of 1.34% to bridge that gap between 2013 and 2034, which is not an enormous amount of money in terms of uh, percentages and things. So that's just one possible, simple solution. And I I believe at the end of the day, um, Congress will act to make things uh, better for that particular program and avoid that from happening. So uh, that's that's my response to, to the idea of bankruptcy and Social Security. So I ask the question to you, how come more people aren't maximizing this type of benefit? Well, I think there's a couple reasons for it. And I think the first one is this. Many underestimate the life expectancy, either their own life expectancy or joint life expectancies. Certainly that's true. Uh, I also think that many people aren't aware of and don't know about the, uh, the switching strategies involved with Social Security. And indeed, you know, they're pretty complex. I mean, you won't get these types of detailed answers by talking to the uh, Social Security Administration. Uh, a lot of times they're more interested in giving you the maximum amount of benefits you can receive today rather than the maximum amount of benefits you can receive over your lifetime, which is, I think, in my view, um, a far more important question, a much more profound question. And then lastly, I think some folks are aware that it may not be around, um, which I, I think we we also adequate, adequately addressed. So this is the coming up on the last uh, few seconds of this particular segment. Um, we talked about Social Security. We're going to talk next about some tax strategies that retirees can use to help minimize taxes throughout their lifetime. Uh, if you have a particular question on Social Security, you'd like to have someone, a professional, perhaps examine your specific situation, uh, give us a call here at Empirical. You can reach us at uh, 206-923-3474. Uh, that's our direct office line. Feel free to ask for, for Ken. Oh, actually, he's on vacation right now. So ask for Ethan, and I'll be happy to help you and uh, give you some guidance. We're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. Take care. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back. Uh, Empirical Investing Radio, your host here, Ethan Broga, guiding the ship today. As I said earlier, my, my co-host, Ken Smith, is on uh, luxurious vacation in Hawaii for the last week. Um, I'm sure he's listening now, but uh, this one's for you, Ken. Hope you're having a good time there. Uh, as I mentioned in our first part of the show, we're discussing primarily today what I call the five secrets of retirement success. And in the first segment, we talked about uh, Social Security primarily, uh, the ideas behind maximizing that particular benefit going into retirement, introducing a few new ideas to most folks, I'm sure, either the restricted application or the uh, file and suspend strategy, um, along with a conversation on joint life expectancies. So for part two here, we're going to, or rather our next secret, secret number two, we're going to focus, shift the focus on to tax savings. And I think what's unique about this particular idea of the five secrets of retirement success, most of them don't focus on investments. Most of them focus on financial planning ideas. And a lot of times you you meet with folks, or I do because I'm in the financial planning and advisory business, you meet with folks and you have a discussion about, well, hey, those are interesting ideas, interesting concepts, but how often can you tie together the the specific strategy, recommended strategy, to a dollar amount? Hey, this is what I expect you to receive in additional benefit over what you're going to be doing yourself or doing things on your own. And that's what's unique about this particular presentation. We try to translate some of the ethereal language of planning into a language we all understand, which is dollars and cents. And so for the first first uh, section there, with, which was the Social Security, um, we talked about how we expect to add $200,000 of more wealth for a particular couple heading into retirement than they had previously expected to earn from Social Security. And that's the same idea we're going to carry into this particular segment, talking about, again, Roth conversions. And that is secret number two. And I have here, I, I like to call it diffusing the, the ticking time bomb or the tax time bomb. And indeed, for a lot of folks, that's how it works. Um, to get... To do a Roth conversion, what it takes is this, basically. Um, you have money in a tax-deferred account. Let's call it an IRA account or a 401k or something similar. And then you simply move some money, some portion of that account, of that IRA, let's call it an IRA, to a Roth IRA. And what happens at that time means that any money that comes out of the IRA, obviously, is taxed, right? So that's part of the part of the deal. You've gotten tax-deferred growth over a long period of time, probably, with monies in the IRA. So once you pull it out, you have to pay income tax. And when you do a Roth IRA conversion, you're simply moving money from one bucket to the other. So let's say you're age 60 years old, age 60 rather, you have a million dollars in an IRA now, and you want to do a conversion, move money from one bucket to the other. Let's say you decide to move $10,000. So you literally move $10,000 from your million dollar IRA to the Roth IRA, which previously had zero in it, and then you have $10,000. Now you'd pay income tax on that $10,000. That's how that would work. Um, so you're asking probably, well, why would I want to do that? Well, people who are entering retirement have a very unique situation. Um, if, let's say, you're 60 years old, you've just retired, well, you no longer have earned income. So for the first year of retirement, you probably are in the lowest tax bracket you have been in for, well, your probably entire adult life. So if you're in the 28% bracket prior to retirement, you're probably in the 10 or, or maybe even 0% bracket the first year of retirement, again, because you don't have any earned income. Um, unless you have some portfolio income, but likely it's not going to replace the amount of earned income you had during retirement. So consequently, you'll be in a lower tax bracket. You're also not of Social Security age, so you can't have that as income. 
Um, and you don't have to take money out of your IRA account because you're not seven and a half yet. So that's kind of the idea. When you're in entering retirement, you're tr- traditionally in a lower tax bracket than you have been in quite some time. And I am, am proposing that, purporting that it's also going to be lower than you probably will be in the future. So let's take an example here. Um, let's say we have uh, the same folks that were retiring early, earlier in my last example with Social Security. They're currently 60 years old. Let's call them John and Jane Sample. And their situation is pretty common. They have a million dollars saved up in a tax-deferred IRA account that they rolled over from a company retirement plan. They have $500,000 in a taxable joint account. Uh, they also have a pension that one of them earned. Uh, maybe it was the, maybe they were working for Boeing and they have, a, say, a $25,000, $20,000 pension uh, per year starting the first year of retirement. And they also individually call, qualify for Social Security. And they intend to use the restricted application that we previously discussed in uh, the first part of the show. Beyond that, they don't have any other income. And so at age 60, looking at the, their tax situation in that particular year, boy, they're in a very, very low low tax bracket. They also have more than just the standard deductions. In this case, they have about $20,000 of deductions because they still have a mortgage on their home. Um, that presents us unique opportunities that I think most folks, not being aware of, of all the different tax nuances and, and so forth, may miss. And so let's walk through a scenario here. Let's walk through an example. Just gave you the, the, the facts for John and Jane sample. They're, they have a million dollars in an IRA account, and uh, they have half a million dollars in a, in a taxable account. They're age 60. They intend to not draw on the IRA for some time because they have a half a million dollars of savings. Um, and that would be reduced over time by the fact they were taking withdrawals that are also being supplemented over time th- with Social Security. So this is what's going to happen with them if they do nothing. Let's say they live to normal life expectancies and, and so forth. Again, starting at age 60, they have $1 million in an IRA account. Um, by age 70, if they do nothing, don't take any money out of the IRA between age 60 and 70, just at a 5% compound growth rate, that IRA in the future will be worth $1.7 million, so even larger than it was before. And looking ahead to age 90, that IRA would actually have $1.45 million, just at a 5% compound growth rate. Now, you're asking yourself, well, why is it less? Why do I have less between ages 70 and 90, even though I have it grow at 5% compound growth rate. Well, the issue is that you have to take money out starting at age 70 and a half. That's called required minimum distributions. In other words, the IRS forces you to take money out at age 70 and beyond out of your tax-deferred IRA accounts and 401ks and things. All said and done, over their lifetime, between ages 60 and 90, though, what we expect to have happen is to have John and Jane pay a total tax bill of about $759,000. So three-quarters of a million bucks is going to go out the door in taxes throughout their lifetime if they do nothing different. Uh, that's, the expected, what, that's expected to happen. And it might even be more than that in time, depending on the growth rates of the different accounts. But we're assuming here just a flat 5%, pretty simple uh, rate of return. That's an enormous amount of money. So what can we do on the planning side of things to help reduce that tax bill over time? Uh, well, one of the first things I, I would suggest, after we've already maximized the Social Security strategy is doing Roth conversions. That idea of pulling money out when you're in a low tax bracket to avoid paying tax at a higher bracket later. And fundamentally, if that's true, then you should always consider a Roth conversion. That's what makes this secret work. If you're going to avoid paying tax at a higher rate at some point in the future than you are today, it makes sense, sense to convert in the current year. So that, that long as that fundamental fact is, is true, you can take a look at all the different assumptions and and, and calculations that go into it, either this example or others. As long as that fact set is true, it does make sense to do some Roth conversions. So let's walk through the example again with John and Jane Sample. Given you the exact same situation before, 
where they had a million dollars in an IRA at age 60. But this, case, this time, they're actually going to take money out of their, their IRA and put it into a Roth and do so every single year before age 70. So in this case, they'd actually be able to pull out, in my example here, uh, $436,000 over the course of 10 years between age 60 and 90. And then critically, not pay any more than 15% income tax on the conversion in any one year. I'm going to pause there for a second because that's part of the critical, critical math here. All we're doing year to year is figuring out, hey, where are they currently? In this case, they're most of the time in the lower, lower portion of the 15% income tax bracket and filling up that tax bracket bucket, if you will, uh, to make sure that they're maximizing, maximizing income, but not to exceed 15% income tax. Now, this is just the case for this example, um, uh, so to have the math work out. Now, if your situation is, hey, I'm already in the 25% bracket, I'm, I'm age 60, maybe I have a portfolio that's got $5 million in it and a taxable account, uh, maybe you have taxable bonds, municipal bonds, qualified dividends, and so forth from your investments, you may already be in the 25% income tax bracket. And you may uh, not even not even counting Social Security or pensions or other things be in that tax bracket. So the critical question for you, even though it isn't precisely what's going on in this example, is, hey, am I going to be in a higher tax bracket later? But I'm 70 and beyond, and I have to take money out of my IRA account. Will I pay more than my current tax bracket? If that's true, uh, which in likely, likely cases it probably is uh, for most folks, um, then I sh- you should also consider a Roth conversion. So the magic isn't around the actual tax rate of 15% or less, although that is the example I'm using in, in this uh, this discussion. So let's get back to John and Jane's sample briefly. Um, again, 860, we were able to move $436,000 over the 10-year period between 60 and 90 and pay no more than 15% income tax. Well, what does that do for us? Well, by age 90, then, we have almost $900,000 uh, in the IRA and almost $1.7 million in the Roth IRA. And you might ask, well, why, why the disparity? Well, two things. One is that the IRA, obviously, between 70 and 90, you're taking out required minimum distributions. And guess what? From the Roth, there are no such requirements. You can leave the money in the Roth for as long as you want to and only take it out when you want. And when you do, it's going to be tax-free. So a lot of tax-free growth over that entire period of time. So here's the main thing. Filling up that your current tax bracket, in this case, John and Jean sample are in the 15% tax bracket, the lower end of that, that tax bracket. And every single year, we're just going to fill up that bucket, fill up that tax back bracket bucket. And over time, what's going to happen with their tax bill? Well, we already saw that without conversions, what their tax bill is going to be. We talked about that last segment. It was going to be $759,000 of expected tax payments over their 30-year lifespan between 60 and 90. Just by adding in Roth conversions, strategically, in the first 10 years of retirement, the tax bill drops considerably. The overall tax bill drops to $624,000. That's a different difference of uh, $134,000 in tax savings just from doing conversions for a 10-year period early in retirement. That is an enormous amount of tax savings, um, $134,000. That's money you get to, to choose to spend on other things. How much more satisfying would it be to have that much more wealth added to your retirement? Unexpectedly, just from, from saving money on taxes. Well, I know I'd really enjoy that. I think everybody else would as well. Also, taking a look at the required minimum distributions at age 70, from doing nothing, they were going to be $62,000 in the first at the first RMD age at age 70 and a half. With the conversions, just doing conversions systematically for the first 10 years of retirement, the RMDs dropped to $40,000. So that's a $22,000 difference in required minimum distribution size. 
So an enormous amount of, uh, of difference in, in required minimums and an enormous difference in, in, in wealth in terms of tax savings. And what I like most about this is that it's not something that is dependent on the stock market. You know, the last 10 years, last 12 years has been very difficult, I think, for most investors. Um, we've been sort of bookended by two, two pretty severe down markets over the last 12 years or so. Um, this strategy has nothing to do with market returns. It's just tax smart. And I think this is something that is probably the most underutilized strategy out there for retirees. Most folks don't understand this. And a lot of times, in fact, people who are in a low tax bracket, I find, um, have more deductions than they have income sometimes early in retirement. And that means you have you could have converted money from an IRA to a Roth for free. So let's say you had uh, $30,000 of deductions going into your age 60, but you had no income that particular year. Well, that's 30000 bucks. If you had an IRA, you could have moved to a Roth IRA and paid no tax. Um, so this is one thing to consider here. And we're running up on the break here. We have about 30 seconds. So why is not this strategy better known? I think the main reason for this is this. How can I minimize taxes over my lifetime? That's hardly ever the question that gets asked to CPAs or investment advisors. The question I always hear is, how can I minimize tax right now in the current year? Which is an important question, but I don't think it really strikes at the heart of the matter. And that is saving money over time in taxes over your lifetime. And I think the Roth conversion strategy is the best way to do that. All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back for our next section. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S dot com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Okay, we're back. Empirical Investing Radio. Your host today, uh, Ethan Broga. Uh, if you'd like to join the program, feel free to give us a call today. Um, I have Elliot manning the phones and manning the email system here. So give us a call or, or shoot us a message, and uh, we'll get it on the air. Number is 866-472-5790 or email at contact at empiradio.com. And we're entering our third segment of the day. And I just want to recap where we're at with things. We were talking about the five secrets of retirement success, and we've gone through already the first two steps, which are Social Security planning and doing Roth conversions. And one more thing on Roth conversions before we move on to the next uh, 
secret. And I wanted to point out that I think this strategy is less utilized than it ought to be. I think it's one of the most powerful tools out there, at least tax planning tools that folks have at their disposal, uh, particularly for retirees. Um, I think it's less known than it ought to be because of the idea of usually the question that gets asked is how can I save taxes in the current year? Which is definitely a pertinent question, but I think the more important question is how can I save taxes over my lifetime? And uh, that question frequently doesn't get asked, I find. And doing this doing this Roth conversion strategy is kind of like going to going to the gym, right? If you, you go to the gym one time, do you expect really that you'll see any results? Uh, probably not. Um, much like doing a Roth conversion. You do it in any one particular year, it probably won't, isn't going to add up to much over time. But what happens if you go to the gym three days a week for an entire year? Well, by the end of the year, you're probably in pretty good shape. And similarly, if you do Roth conversion systematically while you're in a low tax bracket, particularly in retirement, you'll be in very good financial shape uh, after after the years have gone by of doing this systematically and regularly. There also are a lot of rules surrounding Roth conversions um, in terms of um, you know being not so much eligible anymore. The eligibility requirements are easy to meet. But making sure that you've kept the conversions or maximized the conversions, you have to figure out where you're going to be in your tax bracket every single year. That takes an inventory of your tax, tax return, basically, and an estimate where you're going to be in the current year. So that isn't always very easy. Um, there are also ways to undo conversions. So let's say, for example, you do a conversion. Uh, you move $10,000 of, let's say, the S&P 500 stock index into a Roth IRA in a particular year. And maybe you did it today. And then over the next few months, the stock market goes down a ton. So the security you have now in the Roth IRA drops, say, 50%. Well, you have a, an investment now that's worth $5,000, where you it was worth initially $10,000. You don't really want to pay tax on, on $10,000 when it's only worth $5,000. And for that reason, you can do what's called a recharacterization. You can actually pull money back out of the Roth and put it back from the account from which it came and have it be as if it, n- it never happened. So you can basically get a chance to do over uh, any conversions. Um, and actually, you, you have until October 15th of the year following the conversion to decide to keep the conversion or not. So uh, in this case, if you did a conversion today, you'd actually have until October 15th, 2014, uh, to decide to keep the conversion. That gives it a long time to work out in your favor. Um, another thing, importantly, if you're, you're married especially, and both spouses have uh, tax-deferred accounts, um, and you're early in retirement, and you don't want to pass up the opportunity you know, to give up a tax year where you, because you recharacterize a conversion and then not do a conversion in a particular year, even though you wanted to, one way to get around that is this. Uh, if you both have an, I, an IRA, a tax-deferred IRA, let's say you convert $10,000, uh, as in my example earlier, and then over the next few months it goes down, say, 50%, so it's now only worth $5,000. Well, at the exact same time that you undo your conversion and put the money back into the IRA, you can convert money in your spouse's IRA. So you get a move $10,000 of the S&P, which is now worth, per share, uh, uh, 50% less, you basically get more more shares in at a lower price, but paying the same tax. So there's a rule, rules and ways around doing these conversions, particularly if you're you're married and they both have tax deferred IRA accounts. So these rules can be a little complicated. Um, if you'd like some professional help, um, you know, talk to your CPA. If that can help you, give us a call. Uh, we can talk to you about that. The number here at the office is 206-923-3474, and feel free to ask for for Ethan as Ken is on vacation today. All right, moving on to our next secret, and that is uh, what we call asset placement. So just to recap, our first two secrets in my example of John and Jane sample 
by the way, they started this whole example with $1 million in an IRA account and $500,000 in a taxable account. They're both retired, age 60. For the first two planning steps, Social Security and Roth conversions, we expect to have an increase in wealth of $342,000 just for the, the first two areas of these, uh, these planning secrets, which is significant. I mean, as a percentage basis of their total wealth, it's an enormous amount of, of, of money added to them just by doing some thorough planning for them. Okay, talking about asset placement. And so I, when I do these programs or do these uh, the presentations um, uh, around the, the sound here, I often ask, who, who here has heard of asset placement? And more often than not, most people don't raise their hand, which isn't too surprising. It's not a, a very well-known thing, I don't think, for most folks. But it goes back to this. You basically have three different types of accounts. There are Roth IRAs, which obviously contributions of those go tax-free. You have tax-deferred accounts, which are like IRAs and 401ks. Money goes in there uh, before tax and comes out after tax, so it's taxable income to you. Then you have the taxable account or after-tax savings accounts. Uh, these things are taxed typically annually uh, when you realize capital gains or, or, or ordinary income. So obviously the most tax-advantageous of these is the Roth account. Um, everything grows tax-free, which is, which is great. Phenomenal tool. But in terms of how this re- reflects back to asset placement or asset location, a typical allocation would be this. And though in my example, I have, say you have a, a one person, they have a, a million dollars in total, and they just have two accounts. They have a Roth IRA and a traditional IRA. So, and they have $500,000 in each. Most folks go through and say, well, hey, what's my allocation among stocks and bonds? And let's say that, hey, I, I'm comfortable with a half stock, half bond portfolio. Well, I'll go ahead and proceed to buy half stocks, half bonds in my Roth IRA. And then half stocks, half bonds in my traditional IRA. My overall allocation is 50-50, and each account is set up individually where it's half stocks, half bonds. Well, that in itself isn't, isn't a bad idea. That's more of the traditional approach. But with the asset placement idea, what the idea is is to put those securities in the most tax-friendly account that have the most growth opportunity. So, for example, if your stocks, which usually have higher expected returns than bonds, if you can place those strategically in the Roth, and strategically place your bonds in the traditional IRA or tax-deferred bucket while keeping your allocation the same at 50-50, that would be a good idea. That means more of your growth, your long-term growth on the stocks, would become tax-free rather than tax-deferred like it would be in the IRA. So it's a pretty simple concept, I think, just stacking the types of, of, of investments that have the highest expected return in the most tax-preferential account for it. And in this case, you want most of the growth to be tax-free, so you put your bond, or rather your bonds in the IRA, and the stocks would go into your Roth IRA, in my example. So what happens if you layer in that discussion uh, with the previous discussion of Roth conversions? So in other words, as John and Jane Sample, in my previous example, go through the process of doing strategic Roth conversions year by year, early in retirement, between the ages of 60 and 70, along with the conversion itself, they also prefer to own stocks in their Roth IRA account, at the sacrifice of owning stocks in their traditional IRA account. What would be the tax impact of that? Well, we actually can measure it. And as before, we were able to save them a lot in taxes over time by using the conversions. But it turns out that in this example, they would save an additional $100,000 in taxes over time by strategically buying, placing their stocks in the Roth IRA account over time while not to exceed their target allocation of half stocks, half bonds in an overall portfolio. That's an enormous amount of difference. Another $100,000 of tax savings that they didn't expect to have going into retirement. 
Further, looking at required minimum distributions at 870, it drops from, in our example, $40,000. That's what the required minimum distributions were going to be uh, at 70, uh, just doing Roth conversions. Now they're only going to be $35,000 in the first year of required minimum distributions. That's about a, almost a $5,000 difference again. And over time, that tax savings, an additional $100,000. And again, this just assumes a 5% rate of return compound over time. So not, not pie-in-the-sky return numbers. So why is this not better known? Well, I think it's, it's similar to the other questions um, in that most people don't, don't know the questions really to ask. You know, how can I pay less tax over my lifetime? How can I increase my tax-free returns? Well, the best way you can do that is by buying um, more of the high-growth expected asset classes like stocks in your tax-free account at the sacrifice of owning them in other accounts. So I think that's the main thing with the asset placement. By the way, this is something that we do for almost all of our clients. Um, certainly, it's reviewed for everybody. Now, whether or not we implement it is something different, but certainly we, we review it for, for folks um, and given their situation. And what we tend to find is that often... The Roth IRA accounts are the accounts that we really expect to tap into last. Normally, in terms of order of things, we would tap into taxable accounts first, then tax-deferred accounts. And then, finally, we tap into the, uh, the tax-free Roth accounts. Um, that also means that you have the ability to put really the highest growth asset classes in those Roth accounts. So you can be very aggressive if you wanted to, as long as it fits within your overall allocation. Uh, by very aggressive, I mean owning asset classes like emerging markets, you know, or small cap international value, or or small cap U.S. stocks, things like that. And we have portfolios specifically designed to maximize the tax-free environment of the Roth IRAs. Okay, so that's the first three sections of today's uh, sort of uh, walk through the five secrets of retirement success. Uh, just to recap, we've talked about Social Security, talked about how to maximize that strategy. We've also talked about. Um, doing strategic Roth conversions, and then we just com completed a discussion on what we call asset placement, which is the third secret of the five secrets of retirement success. If you'd like to hear more about this, we have the materials on our website. It's empirical.net, and look under the Retirement tab. There's a friendly 20-minute video uh, on this exact presentation, actually, and we also have a, a friendly uh, workbook or handout that goes along with the presentation that describes in greater detail the, the numbers behind um, the things I'm discussing today, using John and Jane Sample as an example. So it's all there for your, your review, and we'd happily uh, invite you to check that out. And give us a call if you have questions or things you'd like to talk about with it. Um, I think some of these things are pretty unique to advisors like us. Um, a lot of folks, a lot of advisors rather talk only about the investments, uh, which is obviously a very important and critical part. Uh, but there's a lot more to financial planning and maximizing your wealth and focusing on just the investments, which I think I've illustrated uh, with the first three steps of retirement success here. Now, we're about to enter um, our next segment, which is Section 4, and that one is, is has to do with investments. Now, um, uh, I've titled this particular secret, uh, Enhanced Indexing, and uh, I think it's probably one of the most, well, underutilized tools, I might say, in, in investing. I don't think that this particular strategy is as well-known as it ought to be, that's for sure. Uh, we all have heard about indexing. We certainly know about the traditional approach to Wall Street where you have the uh, managers of funds either mark a time or pick hot stocks, and that's how they're going to get returns in excess of the index returns. But we know very well that that doesn't work. Um, there's literally mountains and mountains and mountains of studies that have been conducted over the last many, many years uh, that basically all come to the same conclusion is that traditional management, uh, active 
active stock market uh, timing or stock picking doesn't produce better than index returns over time, although it does increase your risk quite a bit. So when we come back from the break, we're going to enter uh, secret number four, which is the enhanced indexing, and uh, I think we'll have a good discussion. We'll be back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at EmpiricalFS.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, welcome back. Uh, Empirical Investing Radio. Your host today, uh, Ethan Broga, in the driver's seat. We are talking about uh, the five secrets of retirement success. I think we're only going to get to four of them today. We have to save uh, the fifth one for the maybe another show. But so far, we've talked about uh, important things with retirement. Uh, we've talked about Social Security, how to maximize that. We've talked about doing strategic Roth conversions and the tax implications in a very typical situation. And also, lastly, about asset placement, about the idea of putting your high-growth assets in the tax-free Roth and at the sacrifice of owning less of them in the other accounts, just to keep your allocation the same as it would otherwise be. Uh, this last secret I'm going to call enhanced indexing. And uh, really refers to the idea that most folks know that most managers and most stock pickers or, or most market timers over time don't beat the index. In fact, that's why they have it the benchmark for most things. So if you're talking about the S&P 500, yeah, people who are attempting to beat the S&P 500 uh, through their traditional stock market timing or stock picking strategies, most of those people fail over time. In fact, uh, the evidence is overwhelming that the, the failure rate is extremely high uh, in that particular category or any other category of stock for that matter. Uh, in fact, there's been mountains and mountains of academic evidence that's been built up over the years that basically conclude that indexing is the way to go. Indexing is better than your traditional approaches to, to money management. Um, so that, that's that's sort of the baseline. And what we're going to try to do with this is get returns in excess of the index while not using their traditional approaches. 
and that's exactly where the enhanced indexing strategy comes in. So what is enhanced indexing? Well, it seeks to outperform conventional indexes by targeting unique investment vehicles that improve upon traditional index performance and also seek to outperform by targeting unique asset classes not captured by traditional indexes. So those are the two ways that the enhanced indexing uh, adds return over your traditional index approach. So let's walk through a, a little bit of this. There's some, some learning curve here, but we'll try to keep it down to a, a bare minimum of jargon. Uh, if you can break down the market, the stock market by deciles, breaking it down from the very largest 10% of companies down to the very smallest 10% of companies in terms of market capitalization or size. So think of the largest as being things like Microsoft or Exxon or, or com big companies like that versus the smallest. Uh, the smallest companies are probably companies that you probably have never heard of, nor, nor have I heard of a lot of. Uh, they're not very publicly known. But if you can break them down in terms of size, it turns out that over time, and I have the data here right in front of me, going from 1926 through 2012, the very largest companies have returned, on average, 10.88% per year, which isn't bad. That's not a bad return at all. If we can get 10% per year by owning uh, a diversified group of stocks, that's pretty reasonable. But consider this. The very smallest 10% of companies since 1926 through 2012 have actually returned almost double that, 20.55% per year by owning the smallest companies uh, in the U.S. stock market. That's an amazing difference in return. And in fact, the relationship between size and return, company size, I should say, and return is very, very clear. The evidence shows that smaller company stocks in general have a higher rate of return than larger company stocks. That's just the way that the math works out. And intuitively, it should make some sense to all of us. I mean, small company stocks, by their very nature, are riskier than large company stocks. And therefore, we should expect to receive a higher rate of return. And indeed, we do. So a lot of times, though, how do we get exposure to small company stocks? Let's say we're aware of this phenomenon. We know that small company stocks tend to outperform large company stocks. Well, we just go out and buy a large company, or rather a small company index, something like the Russell 2000 index, which simply owns uh, 2,000 of the smaller companies in the U.S. stock market, which is a very reasonable approach. But did you know that the Russell 2000 specifically excludes the smallest 10% of companies? In other words, it specifically excludes the smallest 10% of companies that have generated the highest amount of return. Now, if you're an index indexer out there, you have to ask yourself, well, why would they do that? Well, there's lots of reasons why they would. Um, I think the biggest one has to probably do with liquidity. They know that the smallest companies out there um, are not, but not as liquid as larger companies. And so they can't always get all the companies they might like to have in that index. Where This is where the enhanced index approach really comes in. Because they're not rigidly tracking just the 2,000 stocks in the Russell 2000 index, they can include stocks that aren't captured by that index and therefore provide the opportunity for better performance. And what I'm talking about specifically here is uh, what we call the Dimensional Fund Advisor Funds or DFA funds. And you may have heard of these, but these truly are the, the best enhanced index funds that we're aware of right now. And they do tend to do better uh, than your traditional indexes over time. In fact, I have a, a, a breakdown here for you. Looking at simply just the, uh, the small cap stocks as a category. Uh, now I have a couple of data points here. For the 10 years ending um, March 31st, 2013, the Russell 2000 index has performed on average 11.54% per year, which is very good. Um, the enhanced U.S. small comp company index offered by DFA has returned 12.73% per year over that same period of time. 
that's an additional 1.15% per year of return. Looking at since inception, and by the way, you may be asking yourself, I have never heard of DFA. Have, have they been around very long? Well, the truth is they've been around for a long period of time. They're actually the eighth largest mutual fund company in America right now. And this particular fund I'm talking about, the enhanced, uh, rather the U.S. small cap uh, fund from DFA, has been around since 1992. I mean, how many funds do you know that are non-indexed that have been around that long, long a time? Not many. Usually they don't last that long. Um, but this case has been around for many, many years. Over its lifetime, since 1992 through the end of uh, March 31st, 2013, the index has averaged, the Russell 2000 index has averaged 8.99%, where the enhanced U.S. small company index has averaged 10.39% per year. That's a difference of 1.4% per year. Now compound that over the lifetime of that fund, and all of a sudden you have 100, if you were going to invest $100,000 to begin with, you would end up over the time frame with $188,000 more wealth than owning just the index itself. It's an enormous amount of, di- of wealth difference created just by using an enhanced index fund relative to an index fund. And we already know that most approaches don't beat the index. So this is phenomenal, phenomenal tops of returns. And again, they, it's very clear that the, the relationship between company size and returns is, is there. It's been academically shown, um, and, and it's similar to the approach that you take on what we call the the value approach, um, looking at things by high price stocks to low price stocks. Now, Warren Buffett is probably the most famous value investor out there, and he takes the stock market, uh, like most folks who, who are value investors, and tries to focus purely on those types of investments, avoiding growth stocks. And here we're talking about the difference between um, lowest book-to-market ratio stocks and the highest book-to-market ratio stocks. Now, book-to-market is kind of hard to get into, so I'll break it down for you in a little easier way to, to view it, and that is price-to-earnings ratio. Most people are familiar with price and earnings and then the ratio. Um, High-price-to-earnings ratio stocks tend to be growth stocks, and low-price-to-earnings ratio stocks tend to be value stocks. And if you break down the, the deciles of returns again, like we did with the, the large-cap versus small-cap funds, or large-cap versus small-cap um, stocks, the same relationship appears. Th- those, the, the, the most growth stocks, those with the, the highest price-to-earnings ratios, have over time returned about 11% per year, 1927 through 2012. Whereas those with the, the lowest price-to-earnings ratio have returned about 17% over, over that same period of time per year. Pretty significant difference. Now, we are running on short on time here. Um, I'm going to put these this slide specifically, or this particular presentation about investment returns on the website here shortly, probably the next week or so after I run through compliance. But I would encourage you to take a look at these slides and the information contained there about how the enhanced indexing approach and how it does, um, over time anyway, have the, the potential to beat your traditional index approach. Um, how much time do we have? About 30 seconds left. Great. Tell you what, if you'd like to give us a call, feel free to reach out and uh, ask for Ethan. You can reach us at 206-923-3474. Happily walk you through some of these things, talk about retirement talk about investments, talk about tax strategies, talk about social security strategies, and really, in short, how to maximize your wealth. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. Number here again, 206-923-3474, and we'll see you next time. Take care.
We hope you've enjoyed Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Please join us again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And for more information about Empirical Investing Radio, please call 800-923-4307. We'll see you next week. We'll be right back.